I'm Noah Garden Swords. And the last thing I prayed for was for my album recording to go well. However, um, I'm one of those weird OCD Jews that does an 11-11 prayer also. <laughs> Every time it's 11-11 and I look at the clock, I just pray that all my friends and family are healthy and happy. <laughs> Hi. Okay. Hi. Um, that was a fake voice. But hi, Jess. So hi. hi, everyone. Jessica's doing Prolon. How's it going? It's going well. I'm on day three. I'm nearly done with day three. I it's felt th- really... It's, is it five days or seven? Yes. It's, it's five days. It's a fast mimicking diet that's supposed to help with longevity, weight loss, cholesterol, high blood pressure, yada, yada, yada. I'm doing it because I've just been so mean to my stomach and I needed to give it a little bit of a break and I wanted to challenge. So do you think that starvation is uh, giving your stomach a break? Well, you're not starving yourself. That's the thing. You oh, are no, it's eating. only 400, 400 calories per day. That's it's not starvation. Not it literally is. Look on the website. It's like, it's 600, not, like 600 yeah. calories a day. It's I think like 850 calories a day. But Okay. Do you know what's considered anorexia? The plan is to do a low FODMAP or whatever it's called or a FODMAP yeah. diet, like an elimination diet after, because I want to see. You've done that before, before, right? No, not really. <laughs> I did like a strenuous four, four week low FODMAP diet. And I still don't know what really affects my stomach. I mean, I still assume that it's dairy. That being said, like mm-hmm. sometimes I can eat dairy and nothing happens. But sometimes that's not the case. So it just, I don't know. It depends. I feel like there I, I could eat anything I want and and my stomach will hurt. Like even if I have like a vegetable, my stomach could hurt. So it, I just eat what I want. Well, yeah. yeah. Vegetables famously are really hard well, to Well, yeah, digest. that was a bad example. I mean, okay. But they make you feel like shit. I know. I mean, everything. I feel like everything. It just depends on the day. It has been nice to like not have a stomach ache for three days. But aren't but you I have like the hunger and not be like super bloated. I well, don't that's really true. Not being bloated no. is great. You don't feel hungry? No, I mostly just had like a headache and felt low energy yesterday. And then Monday I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Can I do it? What am I getting myself into? But it actually wasn't that bad. And then apparently the last two days are supposed to be pretty easy breezy. I was just gonna say the three-day hump is, you know, I used to do juice cleanses when I was like in college. Um which was horrible, but it was like day three was always the hardest. And then four, or if I had the guts to do five, like four and five were always a breeze compared to day three. Yeah. I was never a cleanse person. I once tried to do the master cleanse, which is fucking crazy. And no one should do that. I generally am opposed to cleanses in general, but this particular cleanse is based off of 30 years of scientific research. The man who founded it, like donates all of the money he makes from it, like back into research and I think that there's a lot of like pretty solid science. A lot of it is still questionable, but I, I felt I trusted the system, the prolong system. That's good. Yeah. I hope, I hope you didn't pay full price. Hell no. I don't pay full price for anything. Okay. Just checking. Oh, did you use, um, our code pray for us? No, I'm kidding. Um, 
Anyway, this was one huge ad for Prolon. Go to www.prolon.com. Yes. Okay. Anyway, who are we talking to today? No Garden Sports. Comedian. Husband father. Of Esther Steinberg Garden Sports. Who you may remember from another episode of Pray for Us. Amazing. You should go back and listen to that if you haven't yet and you're about to listen to Noah. A little context will go along with. Hope you enjoy the episode. You will enjoy it. it. You'll enjoy it. Noah's great. Live, laugh, love. Yes. Peace out. Please live, laugh, love. Hey there, we're JC and this is Jessica and this is Pray For Us. Hello. A podcast about practicing an ancient religion in the modern day. We're talking about how we observe Judaism and other religions when it comes to holidays, relationships, food, and everything in between. Today, we're talking to Noah Gardensworts. Noah is a comedian and a writer for shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Welcome to the podcast, Noah. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I feel like I did get better at saying your last name because yeah. when I introduced Esther, I butchered the fuck out of you. Her. You nailed it. You even hit the Swartz instead of Schwartz. That was impressive. Thank you so much. I It took practice. <laughs> Wait, so where are you right now and where are you from? Uh, right now, I am in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm originally from Denver, Colorado. That's where I grew up. And then I, uh, I went to college in Atlanta and stayed there for 11 years and started my stand-up in Atlanta. And moved to New York eight years ago. How was it growing up in Denver and being a nice Jewish boy? Was that weird for you? Or are there a lot of Jews there? No, people people are surprised to find out how strong the Jewish community in Denver is. Um, it's, I don't know, like size-wise, I don't think it's among the biggest in the States. But it is like a very tight-knit, practicing Jewish community. I think there's, at least when I was growing up, I think there were 50, 60,000 Jews. So okay. certainly enough to have several synagogues. And, you know, I went to day school and my class was 23, 24 kids in the class. So like, I definitely wasn't an outsider with no Jewish people in my life. And the community was really great. Uh, I, I was very glad to grow up in Denver's Jewish community. Atlanta. Did you go to, I mean, Emory? I or? did, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, that's like the only Atlanta school I could think of. So if I was wrong, that would have been unfortunate um what did you know what did you study there did you always know you wanted to be in comedy or no not um i studied sociology Mm, you Um, can use that a lot (laughs) yeah which i certainly i didn't even know sociology was a thing before i went to college i took it as a prereq and just found it interesting my first semester of freshman year and didn't really know what i wanted to do with my life i didn't have plans so i just kind of stuck with the classes that spoke to me um I, I always grew up loving stand-up comedy. Like, even in my house growing up, we would watch Deaf Comedy Jam together as a family, like, after Shabbat dinner, which was kind of an odd <laughs> one-two punch. Uh, like, I love that. And I, like, grew up watching all the HBO specials, George Carlin, Chris Rock, stuff like that. So, like, I was always a huge fan of comedy, but never thought I would get into it. Um, but I've always been into creative writing. And then my senior year in college, I literally just, partly because I had no job prospects and thought it might be... Um, I, I kind of wanted to get into writing, but wasn't sure how or what direction to take it. I literally just started writing jokes and going to open mics to see how that felt and if it could turn into anything. And, you know, once I started doing stand-up, the rest is kind of history. But um, but it definitely was not like my life's goal or plan. So your parents were pretty into like 
the big guys in terms of stand up and showed you all that? What did they oh, do? No, they, was... no, they, they didn't show that to me. Like, oh, okay. I mean, I just got on my own and watched it and they, they were aware and certainly were happy to enjoy it. Um, yeah. I mean, it wasn't ever like, who's that? Shut that bullshit off. But, um, <laughs> yeah, they, they liked it too. but no, I, I by no means had like parents pushing comedians on me. It was just, okay. you know, like I grew up in a loud, funny Jewish household. Mm-hmm. My dad is funny. My mom was funny. My sisters and I, like, the rule of our house is, like, I, I didn't grow up in a censored house at all. Like, I was watching rated R movies from a very young age. My dad makes inappropriate jokes or comments language-wise. Both of my parents cursed. So it was kind of like, as long as you're funny and not truly hurting anyone's feelings, have at it. And that's just kind of the environment I grew up in. I feel like that's pretty common in Jewish families. Like, I don't know about Orthodox Jewish families, but it's like everything is on the table, Everything, you know, I, think I mean, know. I, I don't assume, but like everything is on the table. Everyone is fair game. And I do think like it's a genetic thing that a lot of people are funny. It's probably like a survival mechanism or something. I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't know how much of it is survival or just like Jewish culture is very ingrained in like American comedic culture from the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, yeah, I think we all just kind of communicate with a level of sarcasm and humor that's built in. Are your parents born and bred Colorado Jews or did they come from? Somewhere? My dad was born in Denver. My mom was from Cleveland. and moved. Oh, the Cleveland. Yeah, Midwest she was a Midwest and then moved to Colorado after college. I met my dad and that's where they say. But yeah, my dad was second generation Colorado born. Wow. Do you have siblings? I have, yeah, I have, I have two older sisters, and um, and I also have three step siblings. My mom passed, and my dad got remarried, and so as adults, I got like we were all grown by the time we became a step family, but we're all close and like do feel like a family. Two sisters and three step. Siblings. Wow! And then are your step siblings Jewish as well? Very much okay. so. Uh, <laughs> Can you yeah. imagine if they weren't like as an adult, like integrating? Yeah, no, my my stepmom is actually a Sabra. Like she grew up in Long Island, but she was born in Israel. Um, my oldest brother Donnie is very much a practicing Jew and married to a woman who works for APAC. Mm. Uh, oh wow! My brother Ellie was actually in Sahal, and my sister Ilana is a Jewish girl named Ilana. <laughs> <who went to laughs> what more do you need to know? <laughs> Even the way you said Ilana, I was like, that girl's Jewish. Can you explain? <laughs> To people, what APAC is who don't know, like, obviously, you're not, I don't know that you're affiliated with the organization, but people ask me all the time, and I I don't really know what to say. Yeah, I mean, I'm by no means a spokesperson (laughs) for them. Um, I can't even say with full confidence what it stands for. I think it stands for American Israeli Political Action Committee. Committee. Yes. From the best of my understanding, and again, like, I'm not active with APAC, I'm not pro or against, Mm -hmm. but it's just like, (laughs) <laughs> Our episode name is going to be Noah Gardensworth yeah. is in APAC <laughs> or APAC. <laughs> it's just like an organization that's in the ether of my life somehow. But um, it, uh, I, I believe it's just a lobbying group for um, Israeli interests with American politics, to the best of my knowledge. That sounded great to me. That made a lot of sense. I wouldn't know if you were wrong, <laughs> so... it's always good when you talk about american and israeli politics and none of us are fully confident i know i always bring it up (laughs) this happens a lot in this space but it's a safe space no judgment here did you used to be a teacher or did i make that up 
No, you did not okay. make that up. You did a great job reading my bio. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, like I said, I started I started doing stand up my senior year in college. Um, but before I like went full time with stand up, I obviously worked a few different jobs before like fully committing. Um, and so, for one year, I taught elementary school. I worked as a journalist, and I also day traded for a hedge fund. Those were like three wow. different year long jobs that I tried Ooh. out before going full on into comedy. And none of them were for you. You were like, I'm just going to stick with comedy. Yeah, I. Uh, they all, I'm, I'm very glad I did <laughs> all of them. I enjoyed all of them while I was doing it, but um, it became clear to me by the end of the year each time that like that was not my life's passion. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by teachers just because I do find that so many people in the entertainment industry, specifically comedians, used to be teachers and then... It, it makes sense in that, like, to be a teacher, you get very used to standing in front of an entire group of people talking, most of whom aren't paying attention. <laughs> I like that. That's a skill that directly translates to being comfortable on stage, whether the audience is nine-year-olds or forty-five-year-olds. Um, there's. I feel like it builds up your confidence too, to a degree, especially if like the kids like you. You're like. Well, if these kids mm-hmm. like me, then I could get a whole another. Yeah, and also, I mean, <laughs> the whole point of like, if you actually care about trying to be a good teacher, you try to build a lesson plan that's going to be engaging. Mm-hmm. So like, you're always looking for that hook at the start of the plan to make your kids pay attention, which is very similar to like a good opening joke or kind of just writing mm-hmm. a set out in a way that you're hoping the audience will grab onto. So there's definitely a lot of skills that transfer. Um but teaching was a lot less fun. <laughs> well, your students, I feel like when you're doing stand-up comedy, a lot of the audience is drunk. So that sort of helps lighten the mood and get a little fun with so it. So my students. <laughs> <laughs> what grade, so what grade did you teach? I don't know why I'm so fascinated by this. Well, it, I mean, it was a fascinating circumstance. Mm-hmm. I taught fourth grade and I did teach for America. Oh. Um, so, oh. so I was teaching at an incredibly underprivileged school. Um, with kids who a lot of times had behavioral issues, certainly socioeconomic problems. And beyond that, I was an incredibly inexperienced, borderline, had no business teaching <laughs> teacher. You know, and so like I tried to do the absolute best I could. Like I really liked my kids, but I also hated the job, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah it, it was rough all the way around. You know, you know, Shay Serrano. Yeah. Wait, the sports, he, sports guy. Yeah. 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 He used to be a teacher and he didn't do Teach for America, but he taught in um, like a rough part of Houston. Yeah. And the class they gave him was just all behaviorally challenged oh kids. Like they didn't even separate them by grade because the school was so poor. So they were just like, here's all the fucked up kids. Enjoy. Yeah, and it, like, I don't even know how. Like, I mean, I, that's so- I taught fourth grade and I had two kids in my class who couldn't read wow. like straight up. Yeah. And, you know, these schools had so much less resources in terms of just materials to help the kids and then also staff to aid. And so like we were short on special ed teachers. And as a result, they asked me to basically give my two non-readers English slash reading lessons while I taught the rest of the class science and social studies. And so it like, it, it honestly was an impossible situation that set the kids and the teacher up for failure. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But it wasn't really the school's fault so much as just a much wider social issue. Right. Um, of course. But say all that to say, I was not thrilled with teaching. And, and it wasn't even because of the kids I was teaching or the school. Like, if I stayed in teaching, I would have wanted to continue teaching under those circumstances because I feel like that's where I could have made a big difference. But it was just like, especially with children like that, they deserve a teacher who wants to be 
a lifelong teacher and committed to like education as opposed to someone who was kind of feeling it out. You know? Totally. How did your parents feel when you made the transition from teacher, day trader to comedian? Well, so my mom passed before any of that. Mm-hmm. Like my mom passed when I was um, 24. And okay. so she like saw, she was alive when I started doing stand-up just kind of as a hobby and trying to figure it out. And she was always very supportive and a huge fan. And like she was like my number one fan, just like a proud Jewish mom who that. was happy to see that I was pursuing my passion. And my dad wasn't, he wasn't supportive or anti. Like he was just kind of like, my dad is very practical in that like once I got good at stand-up and he came to the shows and saw that I actually had a skill and could do something with it, he was all for it and he never tried to dissuade me from it. But it's also like, I went to Emory University, which he paid for and then decided <laughs> to open bikes as a sociology major. So it's kind of just like, he just wanted to make sure I was actually good at comedy before I decided to become a comedian for the rest of my life. That makes sense. I mean, I think that's a valid yeah. concern. Yeah, for sure. But now, but now he's, again, he's like so proud and supportive. And uh, I didn't ever have the situation of like disappointed parents who were begging me to stop doing stand-up. They were both fine with it from the beginning. That's great. That's really nice. How did you make the transition to TV writer? Uh, a stroke of luck. I mean, so so the first TV writing job I had was Comedy Knockout. And that was the comedy game show. So that literally came from first I got cast as a panelist on one episode. And it's it's one of those comedy game shows where it's like you play games and the panelists are there to basically compete on who has the best joke in a variety of games. And um, they sent me a packet before my episode. And it was like every because they give you they give you a packet of like these are the games you're going to be playing. And here are some sample jokes. And basically what I didn't realize is the sample jokes were written by the show's writers that comedians could use. Mm -hmm. So like there are some comedians that came on the show and didn't write a single joke and just used the writer's jokes. And they had like seven or eight jokes per game or or per like topic. And I completely misunderstood and thought they were basically saying I needed to write seven or eight jokes (laughs) per topic. So I came into my episode like fully loaded with all my own jokes. And um, and I won my episode and I guess I was the first contestant who had just came on like with not only their own jokes, but like an array of jokes, because like there were other contestants who when we'd be going back and forth, they were out of jokes. And I still had two or three more strictly because I misunderstood the assignment, not not some amazing joke writing machine. But that was impressive enough where that made them consider me as a writer. And so for the next season, when they were hiring new writers, they reached out to see if I wanted to submit a packet. Um, And I submitted and got hired to write on the show. And I did that show for three seasons. The actual TV writing, like narrative writing, Mm -hmm. what I do for Maisel. That's where I say it was a stroke of luck in that it's a show that involves stand-up comedy. So they were looking for a few comedians to bring into the room to help out with that. And I had just done my half hour for Comedy Central. And so my agent sent them my half hour, which they liked enough to like be able to meet with me. And then I literally went and interviewed with the creators of the show and we just hit it off and talked for like an hour and a half, two hours. It's, you know, it's an award winning show that I never even had to submit a sample script for. Like I didn't even have to prove that I could write episodic television. They just really gave me a chance. And then once I got in the room, I worked hard to bring value to the team. That's wild. I think a lot of people don't realize that these late night and variety shows are largely scripted. Like I used to work on I Love You America with Sarah Silverman and Lights Out with David Spade. And so much of it is calculated because if you just put these people together, even though they're hilarious comedians, you might not get good TV. You really never know what you're going to get. 
Absolutely. And especially it's like, especially comedians, if they're just 100% off the cuff of riffing, the funniest stuff might not be appropriate for television or stuff you can't even use. And like people don't realize how expensive it is to pay for a crew and a studio and the lights Mm -hmm. and even craft services. So it's like, you can't take the chance of just hoping that something comes out well because people are funny. Yeah. Like you need to have stuff in the can. Yeah. I remember I was watching a like a roast. I maybe it was Justin Bieber. I don't know. It was a while ago with a few friends that aren't in the industry. And at the end when the credits came up, there were obviously like an ass load of writers. And my friends were like, wait, <laughs> like what do you mean writers? Like, don't it's a roast. And I was like, Yeah, bitch, it's a roast. Like obviously like whomever is going up at is a not rose. writing their own jokes. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Got cooked for 24 hours before. Marinated tried it out a few times yeah. i think that that's so fascinating too with Maisel that you just sort of like vibed with the creators and the producers and they would just believe in you enough like that does happen kind of frequently in scripted or like narrative television where people just want to be like okay what i like sitting around a table with this person for 12 exactly. hours a day because the, the, the truth is when you get to um the upper echelon of like if you if you're in the position to even be considered for a writing job, everyone at that level knows how to write. Mm-hmm. So like what separates you a lot of times is literally how well you can get along with the rest of the staff because writer's rooms have really long hours and you also need to be um, honest and open and like willing to to work together in a creative setting. So like if you're going to be sharing 40 to 60 hours a week in a very intimate space and sharing ideas, it really has to be a personality you can tolerate being around. Oh, yeah. And I mean, kind of goes without saying, but on the flip side, you could be a super fucking talented writer and be annoying as shit <laughs> and you won't get any yeah. jobs after your first job because people are working with you. Which I feel is really common. Absolutely. Did you talk about a lot of juice stuff in your interview? No, it, it was a mix of both. Actually, like, so what's interesting about my position on the show now is like they brought me in fully to help with the stand up. But then I ended up contributing as much, if not more, to the Jewish aspects of the show than the stand up. And so, like, again, it, in trying to create like a niche for myself or making myself not irreplaceable, I'm not irreplaceable, but like in making myself someone they would want to continue to bring back, I look for ways I could add value to the show separate from just like pitching jokes for the stand-up scenes. And Judaism was kind of my entree into that. Mm -hmm. But one thing that stood out to them in the interview that I knew they grabbed onto was going into season one, they didn't have a clearly defined path for mids. They knew that there was going to be this amateur stand-up who went on to have a career in stand-up, but they wanted to be able to have a variety of different experiences and kind of shows that she had to do. And um, I was talking about my own path with stand-up. Like, I came up on the Black comedy scene in Atlanta. Like, when I first started in Atlanta, all the clubs and shows that I was doing were for all Black audiences. Then I started working the alt scene. Then I wrote a separate Jewish hour and started doing, like, the Hillel and JCC and Federation scene. (laughs) And then started doing colleges. And then you started doing clubs in mainstream. And so, literally, on any given night, I was explaining to them that I might perform for five or six completely different audiences and have to have a variety of material and figure out what's going to work best for that crowd on that night. And so I think just the diversity of the kind of shows that I had done made them interested enough in bringing me in to help with like the variety of shows Midge might do. Gotcha. I mean, that's, I, I, that's probably one of my favorite parts about the Mm -hmm. show and especially in the third season when she's traveling all around, just like the different types of audiences and she has to kind of, adjust her act and her way of being but still remaining like pretty true to herself i just think it's like 
<laughs> Are there a lot of Jewish people in the room or no? Yes and no. I mean, no in that like, so there were seven writers this past season and only two of them, myself and a guy named Daniel Goldfarb, mm-hmm. um, like are, are, yeah, are like practicing active Jews who help with like actually making sure they get the Judaism right. The show's creator, Amy Sherman Palladino, her father was Jewish. Mm. She's not religious at all. She's not like, she doesn't practice Judaism at all, but like intrinsically she, you know, like she has that Jewish feeling, you know, like she's a Jewish woman without actually being an active Jew. Her mannerisms are very Jewish. (laughs) And and then there's another, there's another very funny writer who helps with the comedy, Alison Leiby, who again is Jewish. She, you know, she was born Jewish, but doesn't really have anything to do with Jewish practice. And so, and so like Allison, Amy, I'm not here to say whether or not they feel Jewish culturally, but in in terms of like contributing to what happens at a scene in synagogue, there's only two of us, myself and Daniel, that could like carry the weight of actual religious duty on the show. I think that's enough. Oh, it's more (laughs) often, often (laughs) one of their favorite things to do is ask a religious Jewish question and just watch me and Daniel argue. Because like, yeah, Daniel and I get along very well and are very similar in our practice and observance and understanding of Judaism, but we still disagree on the way to execute the Jewish stuff all the time. Is is Daniel a New York Jew? Because I'm curious about the Catskill stuff. Someone had to like really uh, get the specifics. Daniel is actually a Canadian. He's a Toronto Jew oh. who lives in New York. Oh. He's, he's a playwright and an NYU professor. Like he's been in New York for 20 years, but he is a Canadian Jew. But the Catskills actually was largely Amy, the show's creator, Amy and Dan, her husband, who's not Jewish, but they're just like historians and obsessed with, you know, artistic culture. And Amy's father, Don Sherman, was a stand-up comedian. And furthermore, he was a Catskills comedian. So oh. she had like actual experience from her childhood and her life to draw from for that. My, so my grandparents, uh, ha- well, it's still our house in the Catskills, but like my grandparents used to go to the Concord like all the time. So that's very much part of my history. <laughs> so that season was a plus. Yeah, that was a lot of people's favorite episode. It's fun to see like totally just kind of like take a trip back in time and see all of that. And it feels so real. Obviously, like I was not alive in the 50s or 60s. I was born in 1992, but it's so yeah. fun to yeah. see all that stuff and also to see like how so many of like the Jew things, the Jewish things are the same. Yeah, the same. <laughs> nothing changes yeah. and everything does at the same time. I mean, that's kind of the beautiful part about Judaism in general is, is that like there are certain things that are always going to be the way they are because there are so many deeply rooted traditions, but also it's a dynamic, it's a dynamic religion with um, dynamic people willing to push it forward and like push the envelope and change the boundaries of what we do. So Yeah, I want to ask you, and if you want us to cut this part, we can't. <laughs> But we we talked to Esther about this. So Rachel Brosnahan, who plays Midge, is not Jewish. How yeah. do you was that a big conversation? Like, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about non-Jews playing Jews? Do you care at all? Uh, well, so first and foremost, there was certainly no conversation with myself involved because I came <laughs> on the pilot was already the pilot was already done mm-hmm. and she was already cast. So and again, I was just so happy to have a job in the writer's room. I certainly wasn't going to come in and. <laughs> who they cast as the lead <laughs> but the, the truth is the paladinos and the casting department didn't go out of their way to cast a jew or a non-jew like it's mm-hmm. not like they said we have a jewish comedian but a jewish woman cannot play her esther herself auditioned for the role like mm. 
hundreds of actresses auditioned for this role and they went with who they thought would be best for the part. So I can't fault them if if dozens, if not hundreds of Jewish women auditioned and none of them, you know, did whatever they were looking for on screen to cast the part, then I can't fault them for going with who they thought would best portray the lead in their show. Mm -hmm. And so that's just kind of first and foremost. And then the fact that she's won so many awards, literally two Golden Globes, two Emmys, that kind of validates how good she has been in the role. Yeah. With, with respect to like representation on screen in general, I understand the frustrations, particularly with Jewish women. Cause like, a lot of times Jewish men are played by Jewish actors and Jewish women are not, which is something Esther has been frustrated by mm -hmm. um, in general. And that's separate from Maisel. That's like going back historically. I remember hearing an interview where Fran Drescher was basically talking about how she herself had to fight for the right to let her character, Fran Fine, be Jewish. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I, I don't know what Hollywood's weird thing is with Jewish women actually being played by Jews, but there definitely is something there that goes way beyond one particular show. Like in the scope of Jewish representation in general, I do think it's important that that Jews are represented well, whether or not it's Jews playing them. And so that's like to Rachel's credit, I think she puts in the, like, first of all, she grew up in a very Jewish area. A lot of her friends were Jewish, like outside of Chicago, from what I understand. So she certainly brought respect for the culture and took like portraying a Jew seriously to the point where like, a lot of people give her credit for how much she seems to be nailing some of the mannerisms. So like, as long as, as long as you're putting in the cultural effort to understand where the character comes from and then um, reflecting that in a good way, then I think it's okay. Jews can play non-Jews, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, yeah. like when you have this conversation about representation matters, I understand where like the black community or Asian actors or Latino actors and actresses being upset that um, there's not enough representation for them on screen because they can't go out and play white roles. You know, mm -hmm. like a black actress can't play a white part, whereas a Jewish actor, actress can play a non-Jew on screen. So it's not exactly like a one-for-one -one argument in terms of representation because Jewish actors and actresses do have jobs. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a defined answer. Like if I was to go on and write my Jewish sitcom, like five, 10 years from now, if I'm the showrunner of, a show about a Jewish family, would I personally like to have the cast be Jewish? Yeah, probably. If I'm being honest, I would probably like to cast it with Jewish actors, but I also wouldn't, if there was someone that blew me away for the role, I wouldn't 100% not cast a great actor just because they weren't Jewish. I think that's a great answer. And Tony, Tony Shalhoub's not Jewish either. Right? Yeah, what, what's interesting about the show is a lot of people do complain about like how the cast mostly isn't Jewish, and that's actually not true. It's just the Weissmans aren't Jewish. Mm -hmm. Like Mid, Abe, <laughs> yeah. and Rose are not Jewish, but all of the Weissmans, Joel, Shirley, and Moish are all Jewish. And then Alex Borstein is Jewish. Everyone seems oh, yeah. very Jewish, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it, it is interesting that like the, it is a clear split where like the Weissmans who are kind of the more refined, um, wealthier, you know, like classic, classic, like almost, it's almost like um, in New York when the immigrants came. It was like the German Jews that were like the Upper East Side and Upper West Side Jews with money. Um, that's kind of who the Weismans portray. And then like the Russian shtetl Jews who are in the Lower East Side, that's mm -hmm. kind of who the Mazels are at their core. And the Mazels are all played by Jewish actors and the Weismans are not. Mm -hmm. Those are my people, the Russian Jews. A little uh, grittier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all shtetl Jews on this podcast. Yeah, that would be, that would be correct. You mentioned, you know, your dream show casting a family full of Jews. Do you have a? Do you are you working on something? And B, who's your dream cast of Jews? <laughs> uh, 
No, I'm not actively working on. So, I mean, I have, I have a passion project idea that like, yeah, one day I would love to be able to be in a position where I'm calling the shots. I would love to be established enough where I have like an overall deal and there's a network that's just like, what show do you want to do? And then, yes, I like, I have an idea ready to go for that. Um, but certainly nothing that's in the works right now. And certainly nothing like the idea that I've talked to my agents about, it gets met with resistance every time because I'm, you know, like, yeah. and, that, and that's a bigger problem in, in conversation. <laughs> uh, but I, but I, no, I don't, I don't have a dream cast of Jews because <laughs> I don't know how old I'll be or they will be by the time the show hopefully finally gets made. But like Esther and I always joke about casting who would play her parents or our parents. And I know that like Susie Essman or Fran Drescher mm-hmm. is kind of Esther's dream mom in her sitcom. And she, She's always talking about Bob Saget playing her dad. Oh my god! Oh my god! Honestly, yeah, I see that for Jack. her. I think my dream mom is Susie Essman too. Like if Esther has two sisters, and like Jenny Slate, Alana Glazer, Rachel Feinstein, those are all people who could very easily slide into like the role of Esther's sister. But I would watch oh, that show. You have this hilarious tweet. I think it's from a couple of years ago where you're talking about how. Jews are always able to pick each other out. Like if you're at a resort by the pool or something, it's like you just know who your people are. I just butchered the tweet yeah. so badly. Jesus, Jessica, do you work in comedy? <laughs> I, uh, it, it's funny because I'm actually, I'm, I'm working on a separate project that's not a show. I'm like working on a book pitch of a mixture of like Jewish memoirs and, and just kind of random stories. And I basically, I just wrote out like one of the sample chapters I'm using is is essentially talking about like, Jews going to resorts over the holidays and being able to know who the other Jews are. And basically the point of my tweet and the chapter was like, it's not even about the physical look. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, that person has curly hair or a big nose. You know, it's like, it's much more visceral. Like there's just a Jewish feeling. You can listen to the way people talk to each other or watch a family eat mm-hmm. and be like, that's a Jewish family. You know, it's just like much more mannerism driven than the actual physical traits, like going off of the stereotypes. It's funny you mention that because I'm dating a guy who's not Jewish and I have two older sisters who live in LA and we hang out all the time. And we were having a conversation across the house. Like we were basically yelling at each other. And I turned to him and I I was like, does your family, like, do you talk like this? Do you guys like have conversations across the house? And he was like, no, never. Like you go into the same room. I was like, oh, (laughs) That's one of the things, like, when I started dating Esther, she was the first Jewish woman that I had dated in an actual serious relationship. And and it was instantly so comforting for her to come to a dinner with my family and not be bothered or thrown off by the fact that there were literally four different conversations going on <laughs> at, across the table over each other. And not only did it not bother her, but she was familiar with it. And that's the way her family eats and talks as well. And so, yeah, that that's kind of the essence of what I was talking about with like Jews know who other Jews are. Mm-hmm. It's not about what we look about the way we act. Yeah. But I think that there are a lot of like non-Jews who can also be very Jewish. Like there's something about, like sometimes I'm like, there has to be Jewish blood in there somewhere. Of course. Or, or at least um, they've just spent a lot of time around Jewish people. Like you can mm-hmm. pick up on, on other cultures and communities traits mm-hmm. very easily. Yeah. Like I think, and where I grew up in New York. So like, a lot of people also were very loud and talked over each other and they weren't Jewish. They were just like <laughs> Italian. But then the second, you know, they order a glass of milk with dinner, you're like, oh, they're not Jewish. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jews don't have a monopoly over like being loud and annoying over dinner. 
I think I feel like we do, but you're, we don't. <laughs> when you were, before you got married, Mazel Tov, by the way, you were open Thank to you. dating, like, all types of women. You didn't care about religion. And then when you, like, were you getting more serious and you decided, like, I, I think I want to, like, settle down with a Jewish woman? Or, like, how did that go? Uh, it was a mix. Well, like, I was raised in a house where my parents made it clear they wanted me to date Jewish girls and marry a Jewish woman. But it wasn't, it wasn't ever like, we're going to sit shit before you if you marry <laughs> a non-Jew. But it was like, I grew up in a religious Jewish household with like a religious Jewish family where all my, my dad is one of six and all of them are married and have Jewish family, you know? So it was just kind of the way I was raised. Um, but my, the only serious girlfriend I had in high school was not Jewish and she was always treated kindly by my parents and would like come over for dinner. You know, like mm-hmm. there was never any kind of disrespectful issue. It's not like non-Jews weren't welcome in the home to date <laughs> their Jewish boy. Mm-hmm. But, but there was no secret that my parents wanted me to date and marry Jewish. Um, and I was always I was always open to dating whoever I was attracted to. And then the truth is, for most of my 20s, I was a fuck boy. Like <laughs> dating was irrelevant Like I because I wasn't looking to get married. So it didn't matter to me. So like, yeah. I would fuck whoever. It was just I was just like a young dude yeah. trying to get laid. Mm-hmm. It's like if I'm not getting married, then what does it make? Um, and then once I started dating Esther, like once I actually met someone who made me consider starting a family, that's when it, her being Jewish mattered more. And it's like just because first of all, if, if you're just going to get married, certainly coming from the same background helps. But I think it really only matters in a big way if you plan on having kids because yeah. um having two Jewish parents with kids just makes it easier. Like I, I have some of my best friends are Jewish people married to non-Jews and they have lovely families and they're trying to raise their kids with a little bit of both. But the truth is like growing up as a kid in America, if your choice is Christmas or no Christmas or like cheeseburgers and bacon or no cheeseburgers and bacon, they're usually not going to choose the Jewish side. So mm-hmm. so having two Jewish parents just raising a Jewish child easier. And I wanted to have Jewish children. So um, I fell in love with Esther and was happily dating her, not because she was Jewish, but I think because she was Jewish, it made it easier to date and fall in love with her, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And did you find that, well, who's who's more religious between the two of you? I would say my family is a, is slightly more religious in practice, but, but slightly like but part of the reason she and I hit it off so well is because we came from almost the exact same kind of religious Jewish background. And, and that's what's interesting about Jews is like just dating someone who's Jewish doesn't mean you guys are going to get along or have the same kind of religious Jewish practice. You know, right. like I have dated other Jews who were completely non-practicing and were just Jewish by birth and actually found the fact that like my family did Shabbat dinner or had a really intense Passover Seder as like a turnoff. Mm-hmm. You know, and at that point, it, it actually works against you. So Esther and I both grew up in like households that very much practiced Judaism, but were also very modern and secular and cool, for lack of a yeah. better word. And so like when Esther and I met, we had never met someone else who was the exact kind of Jew that we both were, which also made it easy to connect. You So you mentioned that you grew up doing Shabbat and that. I believe Esther and uh, we discussed doing Shabbat now. What about in those middle college years and those Atlanta years? Were you doing Shabbat on your own or did you take a little hiatus? I took, I definitely <laughs> took a hiatus. Like my college years, because <laughs> I, I grew up in such a religious house growing up that I actually kind of resented it and felt, um, felt overwhelmed by it. And so like when I was free to do my own thing in college, 
I pretty much stepped away from Jewish practice. I would go to the Chabad for like high holidays and occasionally do a Shabbat dinner there because sometimes it was nice just to kind of be reminded of like Shabbat at home. Mm-hmm. But, but the truth is I like for my entire college years, I pretty much didn't actively practice Judaism. But even in those years, I was still very proud to be Jewish and felt connected culturally to the Jewish community. I just wasn't going out of my way to go to synagogue or anything like that. And then as I kind of got older and again, like just formed into my own adulthood, um, Judaism just kind of crept back into my life. And now being married and raising a kid and like starting a family. Yeah. Things like having Shabbat dinner are more important to me than ever, because I am trying to set that same example for my child that my parents did for me. Yeah. It's nice to have that structure of Judaism or any religion for that matter. Like after you graduate college, it is kind of scary. You're like, okay, what do I do? How do I spend my time? What like tenets do I live by? I'm not super religious, but knowing that like Judaism was an option was like very comforting to me. And I imagine that only amplifies when you have a family. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you had a baby (laughs) recently, baby Moses. Wait, how old is he? A year old? He's 10 months now. JC, why are you laughing at me? I just love Moses. Like, I'm not even going to lie. Like, he, were, he looks so similar to the way that my brother looked when he was little. It's just like, he, and okay, I honestly, like, don't like babies that much usually. But Moses is so freaking cute. Like, obviously, I don't know Moses. I've seen him on Instagram. <laughs> but, like, I have to say, like, I love your baby. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. I love him too. He's, he's a good kid. <laughs> if you ever need a babysitter when you're in LA, Jace is available. <laughs> no, like it actually could be available <laughs> for Moses and Moses only. Be careful what you wish for. We will absolutely apologize for that. I'm here for it. My question is very ignorant, um, so we might cut it. But is there kosher baby food, like specifically, like? Produced. it's not an ignorant question i i don't know i mean honestly with like the ultra ultra orthodox who need a hexture on everything i'm sure there's kosher baby food mm-hmm. like esther and i feed him food that for all intents and purposes should be kosher because it's just like mixed up fruit and vegetables so there's yeah, nothing, yeah there's nothing kosher about it but do i think the hasidim in williamsburg would feed their baby the packet of fruit that we do probably not do you think like you're gonna send him to jewish day school and like do the whole thing or kind of like let him choose what his relationship with judaism is i'd like to say i'll let him choose what the relationship is but i I do think that a kid can't really choose unless they are exposed to it to know what yeah. they're choosing. So like, I think I would probably be a little bit more lenient on his Jewish practices than my parents were with me, but also definitely plan on making Judaism a part of his life, whether he likes it or not, at least early on. Yeah. And, and like Esther and I both went to Jewish day school through middle school and then went to public high school. And that seemed to be a great mixture for us because I got enough of the Jewish upbringing for it to like always be a part of my life. And like mm-hmm. I read and speak Hebrew and I'm not. Oh, wow. But then also like my secular high school years were some of the best years of my life. And I forged some of the most important relationships and was exposed to things outside of the Jewish bubble that have served me well. And like I completely understand the importance of not only having the Jewish community as the only community in your life. Um, but but the truth is just the cost alone of what day school is now. Mm-hmm. Like, especially if you live in New York or L.A., day schools are like thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. And I'm not stoked about paying college <laughs> tuition. My kid is in kindergarten. So we'll kind of play it by ear. But the truth is, um, for me, with schooling, it's not so much about Jewish or not Jewish so much as like what type of learner he seems to be. Yeah. So like I 
I want to pay attention to what his academic needs are and then try to get him the best schooling possible for that. And then like Jewish camp is always an option too. If mm-hmm. you, you know, yeah. Which, you guys are New Yorkers now. You gotta, you gotta do the camp thing. Yeah. You gotta ship your yeah, camp. And, and I both grew up going to, yeah, we all grew up going to summer camp. So like, there's no doubt that one way or another will expose him not only just a Jewish religion, but like Jewish culture and give him all the opportunities to be involved with Judaism as he wants. But listen, if, if he hates it or he's miserable in that environment, I'm not going to force him. Did you go to camp? <laughs> JC's yeah. been dying to ask this question. JC's obsessed with camp. She would still uh, go. I mean, you know, she could. <laughs> uh, I, of course I, I would. I started going to summer camp when I was seven years old. Wow. For the entire that's young. Yeah, I have two older sisters and they were both going to JCC Ranch Camp in Colorado. And and so my parents would literally send us for the whole summer. I would go for two and a half months to summer camp from the time I was like seven until. And then I ended up going, I went to ranch camp at the JCC from seven to like age 12 or 13. And then I went to Camp Alonim in California mm. for three mm. years. Where in California is that? The Simi Valley. Oh, yeah. So close to like, L.A., but not. Nice Bardeen Institute and Alonim Sherry Campus. And I would go out there. All the kids are from L.A., you know, at that camp. Gotcha. I have cousins in L.A. also, older cousins, and they went to Camp Alonim. And so when I wanted to switch up from ranch camp, uh, one of my best <laughs> friends from Denver and I went out to Cali and, like, absolutely <laughs> loved our first summer there. Man, you got all the good camp experiences. That's yeah, I'm I feel like you've had a very well-rounded life. You've had exposure to a lot of different opportunities and types of people, and I feel like that's like ideal. I thank God I've had exposure to a lot of different people and experiences, and a diversity of life experiences that have served me well as a human being first, and as a comedian mm-hmm. second. Like I do think I have a pretty varied and open perspective on life, which is directly related to how many different types of people and experiences I've been exposed to, which is really important. And that, like, that is how I want to raise Moses, Judaism aside, like Judaism being one of the many things he's exposed to. I love that. I love that. And you just recorded a new comedy album. Am I, did I see that correctly on Instagram? Yeah. Last weekend, uh, I recorded another album. Congrats. How'd it go? Where was that? What was the crowd like? Did they wear masks? Like, was it inside? What's going on? <laughs> it, it went great, uh, especially it was the first time in over a year that I've done an hour of comedy. Um, but it, wow. it really felt like riding a bike where we record on Sunday night, Saturday night. I opened for a different comedian who was headlining the club that night. And they let me do the feature set on the two shows. So like I did half of my album on the first show and the second half of my album on the second show just to like practice saying those jokes out loud again for the first time in a year and and yeah. just that one night of kind of a dry run got me ready for the album recording the next night i did it at a place called the comedy fort which is a brand new club in fort collins colorado and it's a fantastic club so if there are any colorado listeners <laughs> definitely go check it out and it was it was indoors and the crowd was not in masks at their table because it was they were still respecting capacity it was only 50 percent capacity mm-hmm and socially distanced seating. If you get up to go to the bathroom or go to the bar, they ask you to put your mask back on, but at your table to eat and drink, you didn't have to wear a mask, which was very helpful for actually being able to hear laughter. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. That's, I was just going to say, it must be so like, I mean, I used to do stand up a bit and even like, I can't imagine not seeing people's mouths. Cause even if I got like a half laugh or a smile, I'd be like fucking Mm -hmm. crushing. (laughs) 
But to not be able to see anyone's expression, I think I'd just like flounder miserably. It, it's interesting you say that because like I didn't realize until this past year of the pandemic how much more important it is for me as a comedian to see the looks on people's faces than it is to hear the laughter to know how I'm doing. Because I, the only shows that I really did during the pandemic is I did a bunch of Jewish shows on Zoom for like federations and Hillel's. Mm-hmm. And, and because there are anywhere from like 20 to 200 people on these calls and everyone has different audio delays or like someone might be cooking in the background. Like we started just doing a standard rule of like, leave your video on so I can see you, but put yourself on mute. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing an hour of comedy to absolute silence, but I could see them laughing or smiling on screen. And that like, let me know that I was doing okay. And that was so much better than like if their videos were shut off and I could just hear random laughter on a computer screen. That's got to be so disorienting. Yeah, because then you get like the scattered responses too. Like, if yeah. I mean, any Zoom really, it's super annoying to have like scattered responses with internet delays. And I, yeah, I avoided the Zoom shows honestly at all costs because I get like super incredible secondhand embarrassment. And I just, I don't think I'd be able to watch someone bomb mm-hmm. on Zoom. So I just avoided it. Yeah, it's not ideal, but honestly, the the shows went pretty well. I was I was happy with them. You survived. That's great. It's so nice yeah. that they're doing like unmasked, like normal comedy inside. Like, I feel like we're slowly getting back to normal. Yeah. Like this week I'm at the comedy cellar and it's the, you know, they open back up officially April 2nd. It's the first show is back. And again, they're doing the same thing where it's like, you don't have to wear a mask, but it's still 33% capacity. And in some rooms it's completely social distance seating and where it's not socially distanced, they have literal glass partitions in between the seats or the tables. Mm. Um, so like, there's remnants of the pandemic still reminding people we're not back to normal, but literally just being indoors with a microphone in a live crowd, not wearing masks is like giving us the hope to know that we're certainly coming out on the other side of this very weird year. Yeah. Soon we'll be dipping parsley in water to remind us of the <laughs> pandemic. And the way you said remnants of the pandemic, I was like, that's so Jewish. <laughs> remnants of the pandemic. fresh off Passover. I mean, listen, I'm going to be, I'm going to go to New York probably in two months and I'm hopefully get to the cellar. I know the comedy store is opening in three weeks and I'm trying to get there ASAP just because I need something Mm -hmm. to look forward to. Yeah. Comedy club. Like I got booked for a couple weekends over the summer at clubs across the country. Everything is starting to slowly but surely open back up. Do you have any plans to become a West Coast Jew or are you firmly planted in New York? Funny you should say that. We are moving to LA for good on May 2nd. Wow. We will be West Coast Jews. Oh, that's like tomorrow. You better yeah. pack up. I know. We will be West Coast Jews in three weeks. That's amazing. Do you have a place already? No, we are. Part of the reason we're moving out to LA is we want to buy a house and like actually like have some space after years and years of a Brooklyn apartment. <laughs> but we, what we're going to do is come out and rent like a furnished apartment or house for a few months, just a short-term lease to give us time and space to look for a house. Gotcha. That's the plan. Oh, that's so exciting. It's also like, I mean, it's a really great time to be here. I feel like the rebirth Mm -hmm. is happening. The weather is fucking awesome right now. It's prime time. Yeah. It was just like, we got back, we were in Florida for four months during the pandemic and we came back to New York after having like sunshine in a house in Florida, we came back to a snowstorm and like a two bedroom apartment with a big kid that wants to crawl all over. And we are like, we just can't do this anymore. It's just not sustainable for the life we are now living. Yeah, that's rough. I have a burning question. Uh, <laughs> what is your go-to bagel order? Assuming you like bagels. 
love bagels. I am I'm a pretty standard like toasted sesame with lox, cream you. cheese, capers, and onion. That's that's my bagel. But at the Bagel Smith in Brooklyn, and it's only at this place I do toasted sesame with just jalapeno cream cheese. So they they have this jalapeno. It's just cream cheese with chunks of jalapeno in there. And it just gives a little sounds great the bagel. That's fantastic. But like if I'm at if I'm at a Jewish diner on a Saturday morning and I want my bagel, yeah, I just want toasted sesame, cream cheese, lox, capers, and onions. I love that you toast your bagels because JC always gives me shit for doing that. I mean, as being in New York, you don't need to toast your bagel. It's a fresh bagel. But that's just me and a lot of other people. But <laughs> give me a little crunch. Yeah, you need a little crunch. I mean, I. I think with the jalapeno cream cheese, I totally get the value of wanting like mm-hmm. the warmth being melted into the spiciness. But with the locks for me, I need a fresh fluff, whatever, you know, to each their so own. I wouldn't send a bagel back for being untoasted. But if you're asking me what my dream bagel is, I want to know a little bit. I would never send a bagel back. <laughs> That's why we asked. Jess is just always asking because she wants to get someone to say a toasted bagel. And you. Yeah, thank you. Made, my prayers so. are answered. <laughs> I was wondering why her eyes lit up when I said my bagel order. Because I was like, I feel like lox and cream cheese is pretty standard for <laughs> bagel order. I didn't know why. It's it was the toasting. Yeah. <laughs> the jalapeno we have not heard before, though. That's new. Give it a shot. Okay. It's really good. I got to check that out. I'm I'm down with that. That sounds great. Um, all right. No, this was fucking great. I got to stop cursing. Podcast. I can't stop. I don't mind. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us, Noah. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Noah G Comedy. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen for free on Spotify. And don't forget to rate and review us. If you want to support our show financially, go to anchor.fm slash pray for us. Even $1 can make a difference. Touch a life. Touch my life. Touch my bank account. Follow us on Insta at pray for us pod. And if you feel like it, send us a note at pray for us pod at gmail.com. Shabbat shalom. This podcast has been mastered and mixed by the one and only Josh Fisher. We love you, Josh.